Welcome to Itak Dale, a podcast about Poland from Indiana University's Polish Studies Center. I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, your host. Welcome. My guest today is Renata Hrychuk. She's assistant professor at the Institute of Ethnology and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Warsaw. Uh, Renata works on gender studies, political anthropology, and important for us today on food studies. Since 2011, she has been working in Mexico on culinary tourism, gender, and the patrimonialization of local food cultures in Oaxaca. Um, she's also written a fascinating book about food uh, and anthropological analyses of food uh, and post-socialism in the former Eastern Bloc. Welcome, Renata Hrychuk. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to- um, good evening in Warsaw and good morning in Colorado, right? Exactly. I, we decamped to Colorado. Um, well, you've been really interested in how food becomes entwined with nationalism and how food is a contributor into the identities that people assume. So I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about your work in Mexico and particularly about the ways that very distinct regional cuisines get caught up in projects to build national identity. We can start in Mexico and drift over to Poland as we go. Um, Yes, um, Mexico is a very interesting case. And I started working in the southern state of uh, one of the southern states uh, in Oaxaca in 2011, just one year after the so-called Mexican cuisine was inscribed on the UNESCO heritage uh, list, intangible heritage list. So I began my, my field work in Oaxaca when these processes of heritage making were on the rise. The special NGOs all at the national level and NGOs was formed Conservatorio de la Gastronomía Mexicana. And I could observe, I have been studying those efforts of the government, Mexican government, the federal institutions, as well as local institutions and NGOs to um, patrimonialize local culinary cultures from, from top down. But I was ext- I, I, I am um, particularly interested in the grassroots response to this patrimonialization. So I have been working with different groups, different actors in this process of heritage making in Oaxaca, with uh, women, with female chefs, with culinary instructors, with the owners of the restaurants, as well as with women selling food in the streets, at the, at the markets. You know, um, my audience, our audience today is American, so you, have, you must have been to Mexico at least, at least once. And you, know, and, and you know that this is, this is really a gastronomy using these Western terms. And um, the variety of food in Oaxaca is incredible. Oaxaca is called the heart of Mexican cuisine because it is kind of backwater state. It is um, a state that was isolated um, until uh, late 80s. There were no, no, no roads, no airplanes. It's a very mountainous place. 
with um, diversity, ethnic and cultural and culinary diversity, um, the richest state in these terms in Mexico. So, and at the same time, it's a tourist hub. It's a place where you can find people from all around the world who are tourists coming to Oaxaca, you know, just for a shorter or longer vacation. You have retired Americans and Canadians. You have so-called snowbirds coming from, for example, um, I have friends who go to Oaxaca every year from Chicago, right? They spend the winter instead of spending it in Chicago, they spend it in Oaxaca. You you have um, a bunch of anthropologists always, basically Americans, because this is your turf, but also European, um, and um, a lot of the different developmental NGOs. So you also have a big group of foreigners working for different NGOs. So it's a kind of still um, traditional place in terms of the that it conserved a lot of um, a lot of um, native cultures, but also it's very um, transnational, a transborder place because of Oaxaca also is a is a um, hub of migration. So I was, you know, I am working in this this multicultural, multi-ethnic, transborder, transnational context. And my focus is on women since I, um, I depart from feminist food studies. Now, when we talk about food studies, it's still um, in Poland, it's still new in, and not under recognized, underdeveloped area of studies. And um, um, when I talk about food studies, people are usually smiling and asking me, uh, I'm also teaching classes at the university, so we are usually asked if, if you are go- what we are going to, to cook on that on the day of the class, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's placed still placed on the on the side of aesthetics, right? It's I, 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 either kind of cupcake anthropology, or, or, or it's it's just dismissed as belonging to this female, not a very serious sphere of. Of academic um, and, uh, research. And yet in your work, you use it as a lens to understand the structure of society. You yes. use it as a lens to understand the state. It's a way for you to understand complex gender relations and international yes. globalized relations. So because, yeah. food mm-hmm. studies is serious business in the work that you do. Serious well, social science. It is. My, I'm, I'm feminist anthropologist. So my, fra- the, my framework is the, the one of intersectionality. And uh, what I do is basically um, political anthropology. And this, this usually surprises people, right? Because I, um, and I, I read, I recently published a paper on, on um, female cooks, on cocineras tradicionales, which is a heritage category. In, uh, imposed on women cooking in Mexico by the uh, NGOs and the government. And um, when I published this paper and when I, I was presenting my research at different congresses in, um, also uh, in the United States, so uh, people were very um, even shocked by the way I was criticizing ethnic culinary elites because, because people still think of indigenous women, indigenous cooks, as kind of frozen in time, poor women. And most of them are poor women struggling, right? At the very bottom of this gastronomic, you know, pyramid in Mexico. But there are also uh, culinary elites 
women coming from indigenous elites, from very strong and affluent indigenous communities in the central uh, villages in, in, the, in the center of the, of the state. So um, when I was um, analyzing one of the, 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 bio, the gastrobiography of one of the cooks at the, at the public events, like Congresses, for example, LASA, Latin American Studies Congress or AAA in the States, part of my audience was very um, even shocked. And I was even accused of not, not, not being feminist or not being feminist enough because um, uh, I was accused of trashing, you know, um, a woman, a successful indigenous woman. Because and you're attending very, to class differences as well as gender yes, differences yes, and, and yes, ethnic yes, differences. Yes, you know, Oaxacan, I think one of the interesting things about Oaxacan cuisine is it's been the flashpoint for so many controversies about mm -hmm. the issue of appropriation and who has the right to cook and eat, one, uh, eat what. And I know there's been a big uh, controversy over Oaxacan cuisine with the American chef Rick Bayless, who yes. goes to Oaxaca and, um, and really uh, takes work done by women and then appropriates it as his work and markets it in a restaurant and on his blogs and his television shows. So it's, it's interesting that in the framework of that kind of criticism, you also see that in, in indigenous elite women are trying to appropriate and stand for a cuisine of their own. Um, but they do it on the backs of poorer women and, yes. and poorer people generally. Um, what, what do you think that people mean by a national cuisine? I mean, Mexico is famous for having a hugely diverse set of regional cuisines that don't necessarily share a lot in common. So how do these regional cuisines become a national cuisine? Um, well, you know, Mexico, Mexican um, institutions have been trying to uh, form kind of canon of Mexican cuisine in its diversity. It's diverse, but there is a canon. And uh, in the, the description submitted to UNESCO, the base for the Mexican cuisine, it's, um, it's pre-Columbian heritage, culinary culture based on maize, on the, the agriculture. And call, called La Milpa. Uh, and, uh, and it is also uh, this, heritage, uh, this heritage making and this, this attempt at, at, at making a national cuisine in the time of hyper-globalization. It's precisely the outcome of the very globalization. Because um, part of Mexicans were very offended over the years. They were becoming very, very angry and offended, just to speak in general terms, by the fact that the, the, their northern um, neighbors, the big brother, the United States, you know, kind of appropriated, remade, and naturalized certain versions of Mexican cuisines and the corporations. Now, this famous you know, case when Taco Bell came to establish several restaurants in the in the colonial city, in the colonial center of Mexico City, and it was boycott. There was boycott. It was kicked out because Mexicans were so offended. It was a couple like twenty years ago. Were so offended by the by the very idea that having you know a multi multinational corporation coming to their capital city and you know selling them something that was not really taco. And also in Oaxaca a couple of years ago, 
um, a very famous um, uh, artist, painter, and social activist, Francisco Toledo. He died last year, unfortunately, when um, the state government gave granted permission for McDonald's to open a, a branch in the colonial center of, of Oaxaca, which is a beautiful colonial center, this um, painter and social activist, Francisco Toledo, launched a campaign and he managed to stop, you know, there is no McDonald's and no other American fast food chain in colonial city of of Oaxaca. And he did it, you know, there was kind of happening in public space in the in, in Alameda, in the the place where the McDonald's was going to be to be to be put, to be to be established. They were handing, he and his his uh, group of activists, they were handing um corn um dumplings, tamales to passerbys, you know, so it was kind of this performative, you know, artistic action, and they stopped it. So Mexicans felt offended by a long, long time by the fact that their cuisine was appropriated by, by the economically stronger neighbor and was completely vulgarized. Yes, stripped down, um, simplified, made yes. extremely bland. Yes, I remember I used to live in the States for a while in California, and I, I remember that my friends were, were taking me to burrito places, and the salsas were just horrible there. So since I speak quite good Spanish, Mexican Spanish, so I was, you know, approaching guys in the kitchen and asking them for their salsas. <laughs> because this was, you know, the, the decent salsa. So yeah, um, get, get something, that, but that, that brings up these questions of authenticity and who has the right to determine what is authentic. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, I mean, we talk about, I mean, you're talking about the ways that the Mexican government is trying to invent a traditional Mexican cuisine out of all these regional cuisines. But surely with this huge upswing in globalization, with the rise of industrially produced food, with tourism everywhere, surely Mexicans aren't cooking the way they cooked 40 years ago. Women in Oaxaca can't be cooking the same way they cooked 40 years ago. So how do we think about making a traditional cuisine or a heritage cuisine in a landscape which is already so globalized? Well, I, I can tell you what they do at the grassroots level in Oaxaca. They, um, uh, um, and another NGO, traditional cooks, cocineras tradicionales de Oaxaca, and um, they've been trying to, um, to mobilize women, indigenous women from different parts of the state and different communities. And they were using this in discourse of pride in their heritage, pride being Mexican, but also local heritage, regional heritage, pride in being Oaxaqueño, pride in regional um, Oaxaqueña cuisine, and also um, the need, the economic need of most of the women. So they were kind of mobilizing them, organizing meetings and trying to really, I call it extraction of knowledge, to get recipes and their knowledge. And um, the idea was to codify the recipes and their knowledge for the sake, for the greater sake, for the sake of the national heritage, right? And uh, a lot of women opposed this, uh, this process. A lot of women didn't want to participate in the events organized by, by, uh, by this association. And, uh, but some of them, yes, they, were, they have been cooperating and probably giving away their, um, their local 
regional and family heritage also, community heritage. To, to nationalize what was indigenous or what was yes. local or what was Of course, this, you know, this idea of heritage, contemporary um, idea herit uh, of heritage is really heritage rooted in the future because the idea is to extract the knowledge of native women, native communities and reinvent it for the global tourist market and tourist industry. So even in Oaxaca, you have upscale restaurants uh, uh, where chefs, most of them male, trained in Europe and in the, in the United States, uh, use local ingredients to, you know, for the creations. And the flavor is the fetish, you know, here. And um, they also use the, the conocimientos or the knowledge of women. And, very, and they usually have a woman, uh, one or two or more women, indigenous women in the kitchen, making tortillas, making tamales. Um, so there is, you know, this reconstruction of heritage for the future, for the global tourist market. Yeah, the past being carried forward into the future as a commodity that you can bundle up and sell then. So, national, so national cuisine it becomes an asset in this global, you know, tourist market. And since, since tourism is still the third source of revenue for Mexico after oil and, and remittances, or maybe even on right now the COVID situation, so I'm not sure, but before COVID, before the pandemic, it was oil, remesas or remittances, and then tourism. So this is a very serious, very important branch of Mexican economy. Yeah, uh, and it makes Oaxaca into a specific place. It gives yes. it a characteristic of place that makes it different enough that tourists want to come and see it. Um, what? But, excuse me, but in, the, in, in Mexico, it's still, you know, it's, it's still this position um, of these poorer states, indigenous states, Oaxaca, Chiapas, Yucatan, and, and uh, this is like the, the, the resource, you know, like... Uh, La industria de, de extracción cultural, my, my Mexican friends say. So that extraction, how, and they, you know, this, this is just a resource to mobilize and to exploit for the... So pulling out indigenous knowledge as if it were oil in the ground to exploit <laughs> it, to commodify it. That's really interesting. What role do you think celebrity chefs and the rise of the celebrity chef has played in making heritage cuisines around the world? Well, since I'm a feminist, what can I say? Most of the chefs are men. So this is, you know, like remaking, replaying, reconstructing patri uh, patriarchy, patriarchalism in, in new uh, areas of, of social life. And they, of course, that they play the main role. When Mexico attempted they, uh, for the first time to get, rec recognition, to the get, to get recognized by, by UNESCO in 2005, they organized kind of demonstration in Paris. And who went to Paris to present Mexican cuisine? Male chefs from Mexico City who represented and still, still do so-called new Mexican cuisine. And as assistants or as, um, as um, uh, my um, Mexican friends um, call it el adorno, so just as an um, asset a couple of ethnic uh, cooks, you know, like a decoration. Oh, here, like to you, you, to make their claims for for heritage, um, le legitimate claims. So yeah, they were authenticity. Yes, 
authenticate. Thank you. Uh -huh. The whole thing. So male chefs from the biggest cities, from Mexico City, basically, plus several uh, traditional, um, I mean, traditional, several native cooks. So That's amazing. So it's, a, it's, a, it's also about a, a kind of ritual production, a display yes. or a performance in which... This is public space. So this is male yeah. space. Yeah, so it's the seizure of, of women's knowledge. Well, so one of the things, we're going to switch to talking a little bit about Poland now. One of the things that I've always been interested in is that Polish cuisine was made into a national cuisine and codified so early. And I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, getting the giant book, Kuchnia Polska, and, and someone handing it to me and saying, here, here's everything you need to know about Polish food. And indeed, it had hundreds of recipes and, and made some pretty distinct claims about being the complete con compendium of the food of the Polish nation. If it wasn't in Kuchnia Polska, it wasn't Polish food. But Poland also must have had a regional cuisine. It, it, how did this come about that all of Polish cuisine got summed up in a book? Well, you probably got it as a gift. A I gift did. For a, a foreign researcher, a lot of people were receiving this book as wedding gifts, as my, parent, my parents did. Um, this book, uh, it was a very political project, in fact, because it was published uh, in 1954, just one year after Stalin died. It was part of the efforts of the Polish uh, so socialist communist state to modernize this emerging society. We must remember that Poland, that it was completely new country, that we that that we lost that is this this you know this discourse of loss. I will use it here. Um, that uh, we lost part of the territory that was considered Polish, I mean, belonging to the Republic of Poland. And then, you know, the, 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 the Germans left, the Germans were made to leave from Pomerania and Silesia. So we had new so-called recovered lands, the Rene of the Skanaor, and, um, and this massive relocation of people, this, this you know, um, forced migrations from Western Ukraine, from Western Belarus, from part of Lithuania. People were relocated to Pomerania, to Gdańsk, to Silesia. So there was a massive movement of people. And, um, and then the Poland, after war Poland, was, was practically mono-ethnic country. And the regional, uh, regional um, differences where um, the state and authorities were trying to downplay the regional, the regional um, um, or even ethnic um, differences. And Kuchnia uh, Polska was published in this, you know, the first year of the so-called thaw. This, you know, the several years after, this, after Stalin died. And it was published. It's very interesting because the main author is Stanisław Berger, who was a professor in nutritional science. And he was commissioned, this book was commissioned. So he wrote the introduction on, on um, including dietary advice and advice on, on, on hygiene and, and this dietary advice. And then the author of the recipes was Helena Kursawa Havlichkova, who had a degree in home economics a degree before she got before the war. So it was an effort of the state, really, to modernize 
the the uh, to model. I mean, to part of this modernization effort to civilize the new society because you must remember that there was a massive, uh, really um, upward mobility. People who are coming from 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 country background with country background, peasant background, small town background, they could study and they could, um, I don't know, become a, a judge or um, an engineer, and they needed this knowledge, you know, to become urban. Uh, um, to, I mean, to to be to become urban. Yes, that's just and fascinating also, because it's not just about it's not just a question of trying to. Pa- plaster over regional difference or regional ethnic difference but but also which I find fascinating by the way because you I I never connected this idea of making a national cuisine to having forced migration jumble up regional identities and, and trying to make people who were in many ways different into people who were the same part of the same national project I think it's utterly fascinating that this was also about urbanization and about remaking a cuisine for people who no longer had access to the same kinds of foods because they had moved into urban centers. And they probably also didn't have the same kind of time to devote to to preparing food, to storing food for the winter. So making a new national cuisine for the urban worker is maybe the quintessential communist project. They were also, you know, the, these new, these people, these these um, um, educated people, these new um, middle classes. They were also aspiring at different lifestyles, and they just needed the, you know, the the basic knowledge how to um, how to prepare a, a meal. Um, how to lay a table, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So, um, so this was a very, very in, um, important book, a kind of opus magnum. It was carefully, it was very, not, um, very well edited. Yeah. When you look at this book right now, and of course, my parents have a copy, and I have a copy somewhere. I can couldn't find it today, um, and it is really well um, published. In the, I mean, when you open the book, and it was, we, we have to remember that. We are talking about a book produced in this economy of shortage, you know, lack of paper, et cetera, et cetera. But this book was of very good quality. And those, you know, copies last 20, 12 years, 20 years, 30 years, they are still in use. You open the book and it doesn't fall apart after those, all those years. So it was really like, you know, a, a book for a lifetime and it had 50 editions and they sold millions millions of, of copies of this book. So this was like, you know, like an apus magnum for every family aspiring at this urban lifestyle. And it, when you read, if you, if you have your copy, just look at it and you won't find that, that many regional recipes and regional varieties, but you will find some bourgeois, uh, 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 bourgeois recipes, right? like some um, influence of Italian cuisine, some influence of French cuisine. Of course, this, the content of the book varies from, the, from, from edition to edition because we must remember that there was, there was censorship. So when the times were becoming tight, economic crisis, so they were, for example, um, stressing other dishes or maybe crossing out some dishes. And in these newer editions, the recipes were remade to contain less fat, 
less meat. So this book has evaluated as well. I mean, it was. I was really amazed. I have a an older copy from the mid 1960s, and when I looked at, at at different editions, the recipe that seemed to change the most for me was Salade Olivier, um, oh. which which originally started out asking for quite you know, in the history of Russia, refined ingredients, right? It wanted fresh spring peas and duck breast. And, and by the time you get to Poland in the mid 60s, it's asking for canned chicken and canned peas, really industrially processed foods, um, mayonnaise from a packet, not mayonnaise that you make yourself at home. So it's also seems to me to be a the, the history of this book is a history of, of the industrialization of Polish food. Yes, that's true. For example, um, green peas became unavailable fresh. We only had it in can. Even if it was in season, when you were reading um, the list of ingredients or thinking of cooking something with peas, it was canned peas. And most of, the, of, of this production was, there was a factory in the north of Poland, in Tolkmicko. And most of this peas came from this one factory. It was one brand. So it really, it really was uh, um, recipes that were adaptable to shortage, recipes that were aimed at using factory production for urban workers. It really became industrial cuisine made at home. Yes, that's yeah, true. Absolutely fascinating. So one of the things um, that, that fascinated me in the, in the early to mid-90s was that there, when I arrived in, I think, 1990, um, there was no real foreign cuisine in Poland. I think we had a, in Zhashov, we had a Hungarian restaurant and maybe some little rundown Chinese restaurant, which I never saw anyone eat at. And then in the mid-90s, uh, foreign food just exploded in, in Poland. And I remember being at the opening of the first Taco Bell in Warsaw. So Mexican food arrives in Poland with Taco Bell and they had to explain what a burrito was. And they explained it to Poles as Nalishniki Mexikańskie. Yes. <laughs> yes, Mexican pancakes, right? Nalishniki. And, um, and then I remember the next Mexican place that I saw, like an independent restaurant, was making burritos but couldn't find iceberg lettuce. So you got your burrito covered in shredded cabbage, um, which always struck me as a kind of... Uh, definitely creative reinterpretation of Mexican food that had already been reinterpreted in America. So it was Americanized Mexican food, then reinterpreted in Poland. So I, you know, since then, Warsaw has become an absolute mecca for foreign cuisine. I don't think there's a cuisine you couldn't get in Warsaw. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the rise of foreign cuisine in Warsaw and maybe a little more about how Poles had their palates changed, um, their, their tolerance for foreign flavors, of their desire for foreign flavors. I never thought I'd see a Pole eating sushi. Well, <laughs> it's not that in anymore, <laughs> sushi. Um, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I was waiting for a friend at the airport, Chopin uh, airport in Warsaw. And um, of course, being um, an anthropologist, I, I usually overdraw, I mean, um, I'm dropping ears. And um, a mother, there was a couple waiting for their son who was coming, I don't know, from somewhere. And when, when he landed and I witnessed this conversation, the mother asked him, 
And they were going to Białystok. You know, Białystok is, is a city in Eastern Poland. And um, uh, the ma mother asked him if he wanted, what he wanted, what would he like for dinner? Pizza, tacos, or something else. But there were three very different, you know, ethnic dishes. I mean, ethnic, I don't like this term, but I will use it here. So um, it was, I was, it was striking, you know, it was striking. So they, they were well-traveled because they were migrants. So they have worked in different pl places uh, in the United States and in Europe. So they, you know, got um, accustomed and they, they, they got to know these tastes abroad. But um, I would like to, to, to start with Asian cuisine because for Warsaw, it's still the biggest ethnic market from the mid-1990s. And I remember when I was a student in Warsaw, we used to go to Platz Konstytucji, the Constitution Square, and there was like 30 different stands, budki, with Vietnamese cuisine. And we had our favorite ones, you must remember it. And then- You remember it. Yes, and then the, the gentrification of the, of the city center swept it off, no more. But there was another hub for Asian cuisine. It was Jarmark Europa. It was the, our national stadium uh, made into the biggest open air market in Europe. And in Jarmark Europa, in this national bazaar at the national stadium, I used to go there. I said, the people who right now consider themselves foodies, we were going there. To, to do some culinary tourism because there were Asians, mostly Vietnamese cooking for Vietnamese. There was a big group of people from Africa, Western Africa, cooking for them, et cetera, et cetera. So we were going to Yanmark Europa to eat. And then when they started to revitalize the stadium and put an end to this bazaar, all those, you know, people selling in, uh, uh, for example, Vietnamese, they spread all around the city. And right now I can, I, I can, still, I can still spot some, some people who used to sell at Jarmark Europa and who have right now their small restaurants in the city center. And why Vietnamese cuisine? Of course, there was this Jarmark Europa, but also you must remember that, that, that under state socialism, we had those exchanges uh, academic exchanges. And Poland had a very strong, very robust um, exchange, academic exchange with Vietnam. So a lot of people were coming to study to Warsaw and other cities. And then they came back, they went back home and then they came back when, the, when, when Poland opened up to capitalism. So those people, you know, dealing, they were either selling clothing and shoes, so it was trade in textiles, or it was gastronomy. So this was, you know, this is this link. And Vietnamese are still the second biggest minority in Warsaw. Um, and, um, and then there was another wave, kebab. Kebab is big in Warsaw and is big. You will find, if you go to a small town uh, somewhere in Poland, you will find Hinchik. So um, a small place that sells Asian cuisine. It's Chinese, Vietnamese, it's Polonized. You will find pizza place, pizzeria, and you will find kebab. Kebab like Turkish kebabs that migrated in from Germany or like shashlik that came in from Russia? No, kebab. 
the, the Turkish version that emerged, it was invented in Germany for German workers after the war. Kebab, you know, kebab is fast food. When you have meat, you have this bread. It might be, you know, a traditional bread, Turkish, or it might be, you know, you, 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 it usually is it's flat or it's puffy, pita. And then you have meat and then you have a lot of sauces and then you have greens. And here comes white Polish cabbage. And also in Asian salads, you will find Polish cabbage. So this is this polonization of these ethnic foods. But kebab is very, very interesting because it has become a street food of young men and of the um, far right. The far right eating Turkish kebabs developed in Germany. Eating, yes. And in Lublin, a city in the... East south of Poland, there is a chain of Polish kebab. Polish kebab. That, and so, that, what makes yes. Polish kebab Polish? Uh, because it's it's sold by a true Pole. Ah, but you can put Polish kebab at the at, at the true Polish place. So there's this Polonization, you know, this nationalization of kebab. That's that's just absolutely fascinating to me because of course kebabs moving into Germany were changed dramatically because of the availability of of ingredients and they were made much more bland because Turkish the kebabs you get on the street in Turkey tend to have spicy sauce on them and and so I wonder if that kind of Germanization also made them easier to adapt for Polish cuisine which is not noticed not noted for being very spicy. Yes, but eating bahu, but but the group of kebab aficionados of kebab fans are men, and here you en- enters this whole idea of culinary machismo. You know, men they have to eat meat and they have to eat spicy. Ah. Right? So this is you know to be manly, you need to eat spicy. So it's very interesting and really um well interesting for an anthropologist to see that you know um after the the huge march march of the far right we have every um, 11th of november in warsaw most of those people who are very very conservative and anti-immigration and um uh, even fascist attitudes and they go you know to the kebab stands to have their dinner because kebab it's it's considered men um um, manly it's meat it's spicy and it's also cheap so the relation of of quantity to price is also very very important so you have it's a manly characteristic it's a masculine characteristic to get huge quantities cheap yes so I really encourage uh, all of the, our listeners and you, uh, but you, ha- you need to speak some Polish to check the website of Polish Kebab in Lublin. It's very interesting. I um, am going to run right over and, and look at that. You know, one of, one of the things, I, I am fascinated by the fact that tastes in Poland could change so quickly um, because there were just was not spicy food in the early 90s. Under socialism, there was not an access to a lot of really spicy food. So the fact that people learned quickly to enjoy um, really hot food, um, for me, is a massive cultural change. And you've explained this by talking about, you know, uh, being a symbol of the ability to endure pain which yes. is a masculine, very masculine character. Kind of contest. Yeah, this is, this is yeah. my reason. 
but also well, you know there is ke- this kebab popularity of kebab i attribute it to another thing to the you know these um the holidays the before the arab spring poles and urban poles especially i used to go to the to north africa and the middle east for vacation so i think this you know they they this this trips this tourist experience made this food familiar to them and not that threatening you know so Probably. i think it also tourism is it plays a very important role in this so you know this boom of kebab all over poland well one of one of the things not just the circulation of poles around the world has been not just driven by tourism but by also by labor migration yes and i know that in the uk um Polish food has now become a staple foreign cuisine. Um, where you can buy all sorts of Polish products. There's a Polish aisle in almost every Tesco. I was amazed to see frugo, which was the beverage we made in the factory I worked in a Tesco. Um, but what I wonder is whether Poles returning from the UK have brought British food traditions with them. <clears throat> what is a what is British food tradition because I don't know for me it's you know uh, it's ethnic um ethnic this is just multiculti this is british yeah. right now in big maybe in- uh, you know the the most uh, maybe have people brought back a taste for what i always consider the most english of dishes um curry you know mm-hmm. indian food has become so staple uh, in britain Yeah, tikka masala. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, this is a ve- this is an understudied area, and I usually, when we talk about migration and um, that these the scholars who deal with with the, with um, migration in Poland and uh, the impact of mi- migration on smaller communities and on they they completely um, um, ignore this uh, food and food waste, um, these new culinary practices. But uh, of course, that, for example, women coming, there is a female women's mig- migration. And I remember one of my students who uh, she, she uh, was from small town uh, near Krakow, but she was studying in Warsaw. And uh, she did an ethnography of the, you know, food and food waste in her community in her small town and this small town has a long a long history of migration to italy of women going mm-hmm. to what italy and all of a sudden what we discovered that this community got was very much influenced by this migration for example people started to drink coffee in different way no instant coffee coffee cafeteras this you know italian uh, coffee makers Um, more pasta, more fresh vegetables, more fresh, fresh produce. So we need more of these micro-studies of the ways migration, especially women coming back, or, or this, you know, shuttle migration, um, a change uh, the way people think about food and what they, how people eat on a daily basis. Well, Because and women, women are so often the carriers of, of food waste this, since they're the ones preparing the This is part of social remittances they they they, they bring home uh, from from wherever they 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 work and the same for Ukrainian migrants uh, in Warsaw. I know several women quite well, and I was in Ukraine last year, spent there Western Ukraine two weeks, and the impact and talking to them and I know them for several years that they started eating different things 
because of their experience of living in Warsaw for a couple of days, and also because of the friendship fr friendships with with their employers. They and, and it's and they started eating different things, like they're eating Italian food, or they're no. For example, okay, uh, one of the one of the the women I, I I have in mind here, her name is Oksana, and she has been working for my family, uh, like most middle class. We have helpers or, or care providers from Ukraine, and I'm not going to, to hide it because people in the academia hide it. And Oksana, she started to use, you know, um, uh, herbs in cooking. She started to eat um, uh, um, different kinds of greens, okay. mushrooms. And mushrooms is a very Slavian thing. And, you know, and of course, I introduced her because I, I cook a lot and to um, Turkish spaces. She, she likes Mexican because I bring her, you know, different things. And she learned with me how to make these things. And she makes, you know, some Mexican dishes for her friends, girlfriends in, in Stanislavov. So this is really, you know, um, uh, it's through women. It's through women and this, you know, this, this, this channels of exchange. Of cultural diffusion, really, and, yes. and, and the way it changes our, our daily practice. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you and I were talking about before we um, started the interview was that Kuchnia Polska itself as a national cuisine is being changed by globalization, by new ideas. And you were going to tell us a little bit about um, new codifications of Polish cuisine, mm -hmm. and you mentioned a vegan one. Yes, but we must remember that um, that we cannot generalize. We cannot talk about the whole country because this, um, there was a study carried out, a big, big sociological study on the changing tastes um, in food in Poland. And generally, uh, uh, we are quite conservative society. Uh, we eat, we like in general our uh, pork chop, and potatoes and salad and uh, all those meat-based dishes and it's understandable because the meat consumption grew dramatically under state socialism before that eating meat was for the majority 90 percent of the population this was a festive occasion so this is an achievement of PRL of state socialism of this period before 1945 and 89 the increase of uh, meat consumption, the availability of, of meat. So we as a society will not resign that easily from, con from meat consumption because this is kind of civiliz um, this is kind of the, one of the gains of modernization, right? right? So um, those changes in, in, in food scene that uh, I am, I'm going to talk about now, they, um, it's basically middle class and urban middle class. Mm -hmm. We cannot really speak about the, the Poland as a whole, right? Yes. So I was just showing Elizabeth a book <laughs> called Jadłonomia po Polsku by Marta Dymek. Jadłonomia, it's very difficult to translate uh, uh, how to eat. Let's translate it like this. Jadłonomia po Polsku is the Polish edition of a cookbook, I mean, an edition of cookbook by Marta Dymek. Um, Marta Dymek is a, um, a celebrity in Poland. Uh, she's a young woman um, uh, who is the most 
um, popular and recognized um, propagator of vegan cuisine in Poland. She was born in 1990, that's a very important date. And when she was a 20 years old student in Wrocław, she started a blog called Jadłonomia. She became with time more and more popular. She started publishing books and writing for magazines. And she even had her show in Kuchnia TV, uh, in Kuchnia Canal Plus. Uh, so, uh, and her last publication, it's kind of, vegan version of Polish cuisine. And uh, I got it for my name's day in November and I have tried several recipes. It, it all uh, tastes very, very good. It's really Polish tastes. It's sour, it's the spicy comes from black pepper. So mm -hmm. everything is in order. And um, this is one of a few, there, is, there are some more. Uh, books by vegan bloggers, um, books um, that try to remake Polish cuisine for the urban audiences. Warsaw is, a, is it, it's what, what is happening here. It's really um, interesting because we are, as far as I remember, the second after Berlin, the most second most vegan city in Europe. So this vegan revolution is really taking place in big cities in Poland, mm -hmm. especially in Warsaw. And uh, Marta Dymek, um, we have to acknowledge that she's a big, uh, a very important part of this revolution. And she's very popular with, with middle classes because she takes this middle ground um, attitude. She's a food activist, an animal rights activist, but not too, too, too extreme. She also, um, she also um, works, uh, um, I mean, you can see her in the mainstream media and mainstream publications. So this, um, this is a very, very interesting, interesting thing, but it is just um, for urban middle classes. Although she's very optimistic and she, she stresses that, that right now, uh, right now you can find vegan products, not only ingredients, but vegan products, even in, in cheap discount places like, like um, the a supermarket chain called Biedronka, Ladybug, which mm -hmm. is the biggest supermarket chain. So you can find, uh, for example, uh, ingredients to, for, for uh, vegan cuisine, like vegetables and uh, lentils, etc. But uh, you also, you, you can also find um, um, ready products like hummus, for example, and different mm -hmm. breads. Yeah, so th th there's an industrialization even of the new yeah. veganism. I have one last question for you. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about on the podcast is that the women's strike is not just a political revolution, but also it's looking increasingly like a cultural revolution in mm -hmm. Poland. Do you think that this attention to women, their rights, and women's labor as being so important, do you think that will lead to changes in daily cuisine? Has there been a kind of food, food way of the women's strike yet? Uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, yes, this is precisely veganism. Uh, I've been in the streets and I am in the streets with my students and my younger uh, younger friends and I feel like well 
I am uh, I am in my late 40s and I feel like the aunt of revolution. This is how I call myself. The aunt of the revolution. Yes, the aunt of revolution. And my friends from my generations, we are one of the of the oldest because this is all very young people, you know, from high schools and 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 uh, the and students. And these urban uh, young people are the majority of them are vegans. And the majority of them share this, you know, white ideological framework where you have veganism, you have animal rights, you have you have uh, human rights understood broadly, it's LGBT rights, women's rights, etc. But and I'm of course I would be, I would like to be uh, more optimistic about this movement, but. Um, as I uh, as I can see it in the streets, I can see the the slogans, the dynamics, uh, what is what is going on, what they are doing in the streets, how they are protesting, you know, all these strategies, and I think that that this is um, partly um, not in my body movement mm-hmm. because when you look at the ratings, political ratings, this the polls, right? So the left parties the the left uh, uh, has a steady support of eight percent not not more so these young people don't understand this this political agenda they don't relate it to, to the left aha uh-huh. interesting I'm so not very optimistic this is this is a Okay, strike COVID is a movement, social movement, but we are dealing here in the streets of Warsaw, at least, because this is this is where I am, uh, with uh, mobilization. And the first and most important for those young people is not in my body, not in my backyard and not in my body, not in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's why I would really love to be more optimistic about the outcome of this mobilization. I am not. I'm very cautious right now because we have to translate this energy and this anger, those emotions into political project to change, to, to change anything. I mean, to, 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 to make a substantial change in this country. And young people, you know, young people, I'm sorry, but, but instead of, of um, having philosophy in school, of having civic education, more history classes. I don't know. They have four classes of religion. So right? they're they're not they're not in fact used to developing or contending with a, a fully formed ideology. I think so. But yes. it's interesting that 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 we're also talking a lot about feminism as a cultural force, really for the first time, because feminism was such a fringe movement in Poland for so long. Mm-hmm. And and so this attention to what women do and how women's bodies are invested in families and in the nation really also argues for thinking about foodways as a product of women's labor and women's relationship to the state. And, uh, uh, and I hope that the women's strike spawns some of that thinking about what women do on a daily basis. They yes they they do and in you if you read the agenda their political agenda the strike COVID agenda they talk about and we talk because I'm I'm also part of the feminist movement we stress and we talk about the emotional work of women about the unpaid domestic work about you know emotional work care work all those things we talk about 
and I also read this turn to veganism in the young society as a kind of, because cooking vegan is much easier, I'm sorry. You don't need to learn, you don't need to deal with meat, you don't, you don't need to learn how to, how to work with meat, how to work with fish, right? It's easy. To make hummus is the easiest thing on the planet. So veganism is accessible, cheaper, which is very important in the times of crisis, and the widening inequalities in this country. And it's easy because you put several ingredients in the blender and then you have hummus and then you have a cream soup. So it might have this, um, this also uh, um, emancipatory uh, character of not spending a lot of time in the kitchen and cooking what I really want and what is good for my body and what is good for the planet. Right, because these young people who are in the streets, they also have this, you know, planetarian kind of <laughs> kind of view, right? So it might be considered this way. It, it, we would have to do more research on veganism. Not only, I'm sorry, I'm not going to criticize my colleagues, perhaps right now. Not only, uh, um, not only analyzing blogs and programs and stuff, but talking to vegans right now in this in, the, in this more politicized environment that we are living in. That is a fantastic research agenda. Renata Ritchie, thank you so much for joining us on Itak Dale, and we hope to see you again. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.